I'm not dressed this way to bring up the standards here. I'm, uh, we are more seriously, we have a very um, difficult funeral today in our church. Little El Gieselman, little child who's uh, struggled with a very devastating disease her whole life, and her sister went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago to his two families. Uh, this one family lost two children in 10 years. Uh, funeral will be here at 11 today, and <clears throat> boy, there's nothing like that kind of that kind of untimely death. Death is death always focuses us. Uh, there's nothing like a funeral to remind you of what life really is about and where we are heading and what should be our priorities, but there is nothing more arresting than a child's funeral. And uh, it helps us, uh, helps my heart anyway, in coming afresh to this psalm that we have in front of us, Psalm 84, where um, the psalmist, we we encounter new authors in this psalm, the sons of Korah, the songwriters or the uh, not the songwriters, but the, uh, the, the doorkeepers of the temple uh, come into the house of the Lord, and in doing so, in corporate worship, they get all their priorities rearranged. In corporate worship, they come and uh, are reminded of who God is, who they are not in themselves, and yet who they are uh, in reliance upon the Lord. It's what each of us needs today, no matter what we're facing. I want you to turn your attention to it, Psalm 84, which at the beginning, you know, in this small type at the beginning, it usually tells us who wrote the psalm, and sometimes it tells us the occasion. This is called the superscript in the psalms. This one says, to the choir master, who would have been one of the sons of Asaph, one of the cousins of Korah, (coughs) according to to the Getith, which is a tune, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at her altars, O Lord of hosts my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. (laughs) As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that you would come into our midst by means of the Holy Spirit, that spirit of our other comforter, Jesus Christ. 
We pray that you would come into our midst and, first of all, teach us your word by enlightening our minds to understand it. Some minds and hearts here you must open to believe. Some within the sound of my voice in this recording eventually will listen to this and they will not be Christians. They will not be followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe they even think they are. But uh, they have never come to the point of bowing their knee to Christ and saying, you are Lord and you are my beautiful Lord. And they've never therefore seen the, the beauty and the order and the, and, the, and the power and the security and the purposefulness of what life can be when lived by your promises and your instructions and guidance. So we pray that you would come and enlighten us today for the first time or the thousandth time to see Jesus in this psalm, to believe him, to trust him, to worship him, to adore him more than we ever have before. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's men said together, amen. When I was a teenager, I, I got onto these books by James Harriet. Maybe you have too. And I, then, when my kids were young, I loved to read those books to him. It's a, to them the, the stories of the the veteran old uh, veterinarian in North Yorkshire, England, who uh, has beautiful stories of his interactions with. With animals, but uh, what makes them especially interesting is the interaction with the owners of the animals or the interaction of the animals and the people. And uh, there's one story, some of those stories, a number of those stories gave me fresh insight into, into Christian truth, even myself. And this was one such story. It's called A Christmas Kitten. And he had a friend named Mrs. Ainsworth who had a large estate in, in uh, Yorkshire that she made available in World War II to airmen who needed a place to stay for a while, needed lodging. She took care of them. She was, she was kind of a hostile. And uh, apparently there was a, a stray cat that decided uh, she would uh, take advantage of Mrs. Ainsworth's hospitality as well, so she started coming around, but she was very guarded. And in the years, all the years that she would come to Mrs. Ainsworth's hostel, uh, she would partake of the food and uh, a warm uh, bed uh, occasionally, but only once did, was Mrs. Ainsworth able to extend one finger and touch her just slightly, but other than that, she never allowed her to get close. And then one Christmas night, it was raining, snowing, it was very cold, she looked out of her front window <clears throat> and saw on the front porch the, the cat named Debbie. And Debbie uh, had dragged herself onto the front porch and had a kitten in her mouth. And she dropped the kitten at Mrs. Ainsworth's door and then slinked away and died just off the porch. 
And uh, Harriet was touched by the fact, and Mrs. Ainsworth was touched by the fact that this cat, that Debbie the cat, though she could never come to the point of trusting Mrs. Ainsworth with helping her, she knew Mrs. Ainsworth was trustworthy enough that she could entrust her kitten to her. It's very convicting to me as a pastor. It's very convicting to me as a pastor of, of Christian heroes like, like Dana and Fraser Gieselman, whose child will lay to rest today. My parishioners, who often trust the Lord more than I do, or it's convicting to a pastor who can say, who can commend Christ to other people and say, you need to trust Him with your whole life, and yet why do I struggle? Why do I doubt as a pastor, as a preacher? I could trust my kittens to Him, but I have trouble trusting myself. Well, the psalm, the psalmist, uh, these sons of Korah don't beat us up with that. They don't say, what's wrong with you people? Why don't you just trust? Instead, what the psalmists do, what the sons of Korah do, these authors, they grab us by the nape of the neck like Debbie did her kitten. And they drag us not onto someone's porch, but into the house of God. And they say, we're going to, we're going to drop you right into the middle of the house of God. We're going to drop you into the middle of corporate worship. That place where God meets us with concentrated doses of grace and the power of the presence of God that cannot be duplicated anywhere else, not in a Sunday school class, not in a men's Bible study, not in a, your individual devotions. There's no place like corporate worship in which God feeds and, and nourishes our soul and confronts us with the reality of himself like corporate worship. These sons of Korah drag us by the nape of the neck. They drop us into the middle of corporate worship, and they say, we want to show you four things that God does for you, four blessings that you receive from God. We want you to see yourself in four different ways from God, your Savior's perspective. First one is one that uh, is probably going to be new to most of us, a new <clears throat> concept or one that's not one that we think of a lot, and that is beauty. That uh, maybe this sounds offensive to a group of men, but that God considers you to be beautiful, that you are His beautiful creation, and He has put you in this world that he has made also beautiful despite its fallenness, and his commitment is to make you and me more and more beautifully conformed to the image of Christ. In verses 1 and 2, this is, this is the language he uses, how lovely is, how lovely, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy, to the living God. Now we are Americans for one, we're pragmatists for another, we're men for third, we are uh, at uh, platonic for a fourth, that is that we tend to think that the things that are important are those things that are spiritual that can't be objectified, the things that are physical or material, those are not important even though that's not the way we live our lives. 
But when it, when it comes to worship, when it comes to, to, uh, uh, to our experience of, of worship or our embrace of the beauty that God has surrounded us with, we sometimes can dismiss it. And so we had this discussion uh, yesterday in our church about how important it is to make the church beautiful, worship, uh, the worship, the place of worship a beautiful place. And uh, it is important. It's something that goes back to, it goes back to the Old Testament. When God said, when God gave command to his people to create a tabernacle and to create a temple create a place of worship even in the wilderness when, when, it, when it would have been very it would have thought to be you know it's just impractical to use any gold out here to use any uh, beautiful colors to make anything uh, to make anything uh, attractive you just you just do the bare minimum but God said I want the place where you worship to be beautiful because I want you to remember I am lovely and I am recreating you into something as lovely as I am. How love. So the, 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 the worshiper sits in the church in Psalm 84, and he looks around at the place. He looks at the carvings. He looks at the gold. He looks at the, he looks at the accoutrements. He looks at the decorations, and he sees how beautiful they are. And that becomes a catalyst then for him saying, how, oh God, how lovely you are. C.S. Lewis calls this phenomenon meditation on the fair beauty of the Lord. The fair beauty of the Lord. It's a phenomenon, he says, that we need to look for everywhere around us, not just in worship services, but in creation. God has surrounded us with beauty, and if you just, if you take seriously the fall that we have rebelled against him, that we've brought sin and brokenness and we've scarred his creation, we've brought that into the world, then it is even more remarkable that God would still keep his creation. He would keep beauty in his creation. <clears throat> when you see a beautiful sunrise or sunset, when you look at a, a mountain range, when you look at the river, <clears throat> when you look at your wife or your grandchildren, when you, when you see anything that strikes your vision as aesthetically pleasing, you must realize God has put that there to remind you He is beautiful. And He's not going to be finished with you or with this creation until He makes it all perfectly beautiful. Look all around you for the fair beauty of the Lord. It'll make, a, it'll make an impression on you. It will, <clears throat> it will touch your emotions. You know, it's not something that, uh, you know, uh, Presbyterians are, make fun of themselves and others make fun of us for being the frozen chosen, but it's certainly not our heritage. There's, there's nothing spiritual about being unemotional. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the, one of the uh, primary preachers of the first great awakening, that great revival that, that saved, uh, saw nearly 25% of the population uh, come to Christ, wrote a book uh, as the, uh, as the uh, revivals were waning, and he wrote a book to defend the revivals. 
as also as as well as to provide some corrective. There was some there was some uh, abuses of the revivals, and emotionalism got carried away. And and then there was the typical knee jerk reaction to say it is sinful to be emotional at all. And <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards uh, said this in his book Religious Affections. The the religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above a state of indifference. Never was a natural man engaged earnestly to seek his salvation. Never was one humbled and brought to the foot of God, nor was one induced to fly for refuge to Christ until his heart remained unaffected. While his heart remained unaffected. While he remained unemotional, in other words. And, and when you behold the beauty of the Lord, it should, it should warm your heart. It should stir your affections. It should make you emotional. And as you become, as you become more emotional, not given to emotionalism, but as your heart is warmed to fall in love afresh with Christ, you may be sure revival is occurring in your heart. When the Lord's fair beauty takes a hold of you, something can happen like this, as Jonathan Edwards' wife related sometimes later, and Jonathan Edwards had these kinds of experiences himself. She said, I cannot find a language to express how certain the everlasting God appeared to me. My soul remained, I think, in a state of heavenly elysium. I think that what I felt each minute during the continuance of the whole time was worth more than all the outward comfort and pleasure which I had enjoyed in my whole life put together. She describes a time when she was in worship and she was overwhelmed with the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of the Lord made her realize how much he loved her, even as a sinner. And the beauty of his grace melted her heart to the point that she remained in a state of, a, a kind of, a state of bliss for some time. It's a common experience among Christians who allow themselves to be moved by worship. The other points, I, since that one is fairly new, I wanted to camp there a bit. I'll move through the others more quickly. In verses 3 and 4, he describes the, the blessing. The second, first blessing is the gift of God's beauty to us. The second blessing is there's a misprint here in your outline. It should be belongingness. The blessing of belongingness. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. A sparrow is a symbol of worthlessness. You know, there was a parable that Jesus quoted in, in uh, Mark 10 when he said, um, you know, are not uh, two sparrows sold for a farthing? That there's, they're just worthless. They don't serve any good function. And yet Jesus said, your father takes note of every sparrow who falls. I came early to the church a few days ago and I saw, I saw a baby bird, probably a robin, not a sparrow, but it had a baby bird, barely over an inch long, fallen to the ground and died. And my temptation is to kick it in the bushes. And um, I remembered God knew that sparrow. And if he knows that sparrow, he says that's why he uses it. He says, if your father takes note of even 
when a sparrow falls, one that he has crafted, then how much more does he care for you? And he, he's numbered even the hairs on your head. He knows every detail about your life. You are worthy in his sight. You're not worthless, you're worthy. And secondly, the swallow is a symbol of restlessness. And you know, that's, the, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's, that's captured in, in Luke 12, that idea of restlessness, when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about worrying. And he says, well, what you, do, not, do not be anxious for tomorrow. And then later he says, do not, do not seek what you shall wear and do not seek what you shall eat. Do not be worried is the translated word, but that it translates this Greek word, meteoridzestai. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know what that means. Just take off the first part, meteor. Don't be a meteor. Don't be one who's constantly scurrying about, trying to, trying to frantically trying to, pr to provide for yourself, frantically trying to get yourself out of messes, trying to provide for yourself and protect against the future. Fix your kids. Fix your marriage. Whatever you're trying to do in your own strength, quit being so restless. You're flying around like a meteor out of its, it flies across the solar system out of orbit. Instead, rest in the one who says, come into my house. The house of God in the Bible represents the steadfast presence of God. When you come into the, when you come into the presence of God in corporate worship, you recognize that he is beautiful. He makes you beautiful. He rec you recognize that you are worthy enough for him to send his son to die for you, and there's no need for you to be so restless because he is your king, and uh, you are in his house. His house represents his presence. He says, seek first my kingdom, and all of these things will be added unto you. There's an old uh, poem <clears throat> that imagines a robin and a sparrow having a conversation with each other. Maybe you've heard it. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, sir, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. It's a convicting little story, isn't it? If, if the birds are watching us and God provides for their food and shelter and clothing, and they look at us and they say, why are those people so frantic? They're running around like our cousins, the chickens, with their heads cut off. <clears throat> and the only explanation must be that they don't have a heavenly father like we do who takes care of us. We do have a heavenly father. And he reminds us <clears throat> that he is our king and our provision. And he also reminds us he takes care of our children our children, our covenant children. In verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. He takes care of our covenant children too, even if he has to take them home to be with himself. Thirdly, we have strength. <clears throat> Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. 
as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. <clears throat> Our strength is made abundantly clear in weakness, in times of difficulty. Our troubles, the Bible says, are necessary to prove that we are united to Christ. <clears throat> we endure sufferings not always because, I would say even rarely because of our, because of specific sin. But that's our first default, isn't it? I, uh, I was just, I was sitting with a family earlier this week who's going through some suffering and their first their first question is, what else do I need to learn? Why does God keep teaching? Why does God keep sending these things to me? I knew them well enough to say, I don't think <clears throat> there are always things to learn. But I said, I think what you're asking is, where else does sin need to be rooted out of you? What do you need to be punished for? What do you need to be disciplined for? And you're asking the wrong question. The right question is to ask, how is God going to manifest His power in this period of weakness? And, and who am I that God should dignify me by allowing me to demonstrate to God's, God's enemies, His spiritual enemies, that His love in me is stronger than all of the enticements that they offer? We're in a cosmic battle. We're part of His, his team. We're part of His army. And when we go through struggles and trials and still believe on the Lord Jesus, we prove to not just to people around us, and people will be gathered in this funeral today, by the way, who've, who've said we're just interested in understanding what in the world is the secret to the Gieselman's faith. There'll be those, that, that will happen. But it's also happening behind the scenes in places we can't see in the spiritual realms where the devil and his minions are saying it doesn't matter what we throw at these people. They love Jesus anyway. Occasions of strength come in weaknesses, in, in periods of, of weakness, in periods of suffering. As they go through the valley of Baca, there's no real valley of Baca. It's just a, it was a saying in those days. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a low-lying place. It's a, it's a place that's infertile. It's a sandy, loamy soil, and only the Baca tree could grow there, and frequently when the... If, it was, it was arid and desert-like, <clears throat> but occasionally when the, when the rains were abundant, they would pool in those places, as they do in my yard lately. And he said, uh, that's the way we are. We, we are like those trees planted in the middle of a desert. And you, you look at that as an uninformed observer and you say, how in the world does that tree grow there? Then occasionally you see the water pooling. And then, it, and then it, 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 it seeps into the soil and it waters those roots and it waters them for the arid times. Our strength in Christ is proven when it is tested and God gets a name for himself. The source of our strength is ultimately Jesus Christ, as you see in verse 9, where he says, Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed now, it's a, it's a double entendre. It's an immediate represent, uh, uh, reference to, to the people of Israel as those whom God has chosen who's, who are anointed. But this word, 
which will refer to the Messiah is ultimately a reference to the, the reason they are God's people. In the Old Testament, uh, people had to be saved in the same way they were saved in the New Testament. They had to be united to Christ. Just as Moses, who counted the riches of Christ as greater than the riches of Egypt, just as Abraham believed the gospel and received righteousness in response to his faith. And so there is the secret, there is the source of our strength, the only way we will ever survive is if our lives are united to Christ, who is not just our Savior, but the Lord. Then fourthly, we have this gift of dignity. Verses 10 and 11 For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is literally one of the sons of Korah saying this. And it's important to understand who these sons of Korah were. There were three lines of the three divisions of the tribe of Levi. Levi, a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was a brother of Moses. When God led Moses out of Egypt and he established their worship system, he, established, he, he called Aaron to be the father of the priestly tribes, the people who would superintend the worship and conduct the worship services and, and uh, officiate at the sacrifices and so forth. There are three divisions of them. There were the, Lev, uh, the, uh, the Levites who were the priests. Uh, the, the ones who conducted the sacrifices and, and uh, orchestrated that, uh, that ritual system. Then there were the sons of Asaph, and they were the choir masters. They were the Calvin Ellis's, ones who coordinated the music program. And then there were the Korahites, the sons of Korah. And they were the janitors. They were the doorkeepers. They were the ones who, the, who, who looked after the infrastructure, made the place comfortable for the worshipers. They met them at the door and showed them where to go and gave them instructions and so forth. And God did not rank them, any one of the three, as more important than the other. In fact, God says in First Chronicles chapter 26, verses 6, and 6 to 8, the Korahites do their work because they have strength for their work. He commends them. There's a, there's a touching uh, mention of the Korahites in First Chronicles 26, 18. The famous Donald Gray Barnhouse has a... a a funny story about that, that passage. He said that he once went, when he was in college, he, he went to a Bible study with a man who was an agnostic who really made fun of Christianity, and he was just looking for an opportunity to embarrass the Bible study leader. And um, they, they went around the room, and they said, would, would, would each of you share your favorite Bible verse? And, and this young man, this young agnostic, raised his hand and said, I have a favorite Bible verse. It's First Chronicles twenty six eighteen. Everybody scrambled to look there, and it goes something like this. At Parbar, westward, four at the causeway, two at the Parbar. That's the verse. At Parbar, westward, two at the causeway, and two at Parbar. And then he just loved watching the Bible study teacher try to 
you know, twist himself in knots trying to make something of that text. But Barnhouse, being the careful Bible scholar he was, went back and looked at that in its context and realized that it was, that it was descriptive of the work of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were to be gatekeepers. They were to be uh, sextons or janitors to, to <clears throat> superintend the temple of God. And they were posted at all of the entrances, north, south, east, and west, so all the corners of the sanctuary. And God puts a verse in sacred scripture to give a name to the particular doorway where he wanted two sons of Korah to serve. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, far from a verse of mockery, that verse showed me that there is no one who is too small for God. And there's no one who is unimportant to the Lord. And there's no gift in the, in the, 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 the uh, distribution of God's gift. There is no gift that is more important than another. There is no gift that is to be despised. There is no function in the kingdom of God that is to be made light of. I, I love it that, we, that you men so faithfully pray for those who create the meals here. Um, you know, in the, in the kitchen, they sometimes joke among themselves asking, which couch are you going to sleep on tonight? Because our turnaround is going to be so late and so early. But these men and women, these brothers and sisters do work that we could not function without. And God takes notice. And it's as if God says, I have given them strength for their work and they're serving an essential function of the people of God, the work of the kingdom of God. And I want to name in Scripture the specific door of the kitchen where they're serving. And whatever that looks like in your world, wherever you think that you have become worthless and unimportant and you have nothing to contribute, you're retired or you're forced into retirement or you, you've been demoted or you haven't been promoted or the people around you constantly tell you you're unimportant, or you look at other people's gift sets and you say, if only I could do such and such, then I would be a really a great contribution to God. You must, that's where you are. Go back into Psalm 84 and sit. Maybe you want to go into a literal sanctuary today and sit and think. God is beautiful. And thus he makes me beautiful. God made me in his image, sent his son to die for me. I'm not worthless, I'm worthy. Uh, the only reason I'm here, the only reason I can put one foot in front of the other is he gives me strength. And my dignity comes not from anybody else giving it to me or my earning it. My dignity comes from my heavenly Father who says, you are my son. And with you in Christ, with you, I am well pleased. That's reason to worship, is it not? Let's pray together. <clears throat>
Lord Jesus, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would come into the heart of every man in this place, minister to the secret places of his heart. You know where my brothers need encouragement. You, need, you know where they need to find their worth and their dignity and their strength in you. You know where they need to pull apart, pull away from a constant viewing of the ugliness of this world, whether it's through their own cynicism or through constantly watching the news or only reading bad reports of things and, or where they may be neglecting corporate worship and, and so they're allowing a fallen world to write the liturgy of their life rather than allow you to write a new liturgy of the good news for their life. Wherever it is, I pray, O oh Lord, that this would be a day, a moment when they behold the fair beauty of the Lord and you would, you would move them emotionally that the Spirit would bear witness with their spirit in a way that can't be objectively explained that they are children of God and would they cry out to you, Abba, Father, and know a deep satisfaction, a deep contentment, a deep joy that cannot be explained in any other way than that God himself has stooped down and put his arms around them and said, <clears throat> you are my child. We pray this in the strong name of Christ and with hope in his gospel. Amen.